Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. This is Psalm 1. It says, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They're like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked still perish. Now, the author of Psalm offers this timeless and sound advice on uh, issues that, in, in one respect, are quite basic. And maybe it is a little uh, misleading if we're thinking, are we really going to go back to our basics today, the ABCs, the kindergarten things of Christianity? And the answer is yes. <laughs> and here's why. Uh, here I am back to another sports analogy. Some of the greatest golfers in the world, and this applies to other sports as well, some of the greatest golfers in the world be- begin to lose the edge of their game. These are professional golfers. And what they do is they go find another professional golfer who is a professional teacher. And they say, work with me. Find out what's wrong. Now, you would think one professional who's out there winning the big bucks is as good as anybody in the world. But they go back to a teacher, and they say, watch my swing. And they go through their swing motions, and the teacher says, I know what's wrong. You've got something wrong in your fundamentals. You know, the very first things they ever learned about golfing, somehow they've lost it. And that's the reason, like today, sometimes you've got to go back to the ABCs, because you know it. But sometimes when our life begins to get a little bit of a struggle, there's a flaw in the fundamentals. And rather than fix it ourselves, we'll come to church and we'll get a a sermon on the fundamentals and the ABCs and the Holy Spirit will align us again and get us back to where we ought to be. Because sometimes when we just stray just a little bit, our game's off. So let the Holy Spirit help us today as we go to these very basic things that the psalmist addressed to us about how to be happy. And we think, oh, we know how to be happy. You serve God, you love God, you make heaven your destination and all these things. But there's something in the swing that's off just a little bit. And maybe life hasn't been quite as smooth as it used to be. Maybe you're struggling with issues you shouldn't have to struggle with. Maybe there's things you say, no, I know better than to let this get me down, but why is it getting me down? I know what the word says I ought to do. Why am I struggling to do it? All these little things, it just comes down to what? Fundamentals. So maybe for some of you here today, you've noticed your happiness is waning. And would you please excuse me for using the word happiness? 
Because I can almost foresee a debate coming of somebody saying, well, it's not really about happiness because happiness just depends on circumstances. It's really about joy and joy is about... Just give me the permission not to go there today. Because the bottom line is that as, as shallow as happy and happiness might spiritually be, it's still a very real thing. And there's no doubt about it that everybody here essentially wants to be happy. I think the whole issue is, are we truly happy, and are we happy by the things and by the ways that God legitimizes? The whole world's seeking for happiness. Without God, they're looking in the wrong places, things that just won't bring it. So this psalm, he hits on these fundamentals, things that we've known most all of our Christian life, learned at our youngest age in Christianity. We don't even know who the author is. Some assume it's David, some thinks it's Solomon, but it's not, it's not designated, so we don't really know who wrote this. But it's an interesting psalm because it, it kind of delineates good from evil, right from wrong, light from darkness, as the opening chapter for the rest of the book of Psalms. And having read through Psalms yourself, you know that Psalm has a lot to do with the high highs, and the low lows. (laughs) And the psalmist, whoever the psalmist happened to be, and whatever circumstance they were writing about when they wrote this song, they were either praising God with great ecstasy, or they were down in the valley feeling terrible about themselves. Or it's about, Lord, I thank you for delivering me, and I'm so glad you punish the wicked. These dividing things, these two camps, these two thoughts just run throughout Psalm. Yet it's all introduced by the psalmist in the first chapter starting off with talking about the fundamental difference between righteous people and unrighteous people. And in summary, if we just had to give a very short summary, one paragraph summary, one sentence summary of the uh, first chapter of Psalms, it would probably be that godly people are happy and wicked people aren't. And that's a little oversimplified because sometimes wicked people think they're happy, but we're talking about ultimately. Godly people can be happy, will be happy. Wicked people might think they're happy, but they're never really going to be truly happy. So he just lays this out. And from there, we launch into the rest of everything that psalmists were inspired to say. So it's a wonderful introductory chapter to a beautiful book. Now, it's, it, by that, we can understand that there is an absolute standard by which good and evil should be evaluated. And the fact is, only truly godly people will understand what it means to be truly happy. And wicked people will have a false or temporary sense of happiness and understanding this great divide. We now go to what the psalmist said is the difference between godly people and ungodly people. Or may I even adjust that a little bit today? What's the difference between you when you are finely tuned with God and those times when you're a little bit out of sync with God? You ever notice how miserable that the Christian gets to feeling when things are just a little bit out of tune with God? A little bit out of sync doesn't mean you backslid, but you just got something wrong in the fundamental swing. It's just not right. You've got an irritation in the soul. 
I've got to get this adjusted so I can get back to that place of happiness with him. Well, the first thing the psalmist says, talking about the traits of the godly, and uh, notice that the first 33 things he says is about what righteous people do not do. And then he goes to talking about what righteous people do do. And I know we've had experiences with our Christianity, our religion, maybe our church, where maybe somebody has, has felt like it was all too much, don't, don't, quit, quit, can't, can't, not, not. And they think, religion's all about what you can't do. Well, if we get to the extreme point where that's all it's about, there's an imbalance. There's not a biblical balance. So if it's all about no's and don'ts and quits and stops and prohibitions, we become legalists. But on the other hand, if there are no boundaries and it's all about how good and wonderful God is, and he's love, and we're all going to heaven, and let's just all kiss and make up. And If it's all positive, and you never have any rules or prohibitions that tell the things that you should not do or cannot do, then we become libertines. And that's sick too. So somewhere between that, you have the balance of, in your Christian life, absolutely there's going to be things that we should not do. And there's also going to be things that we should do proactively in order to be people of God. Look at the Ten Commandments as an example. You start off with a list of don'ts. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And you go through four of them, I think, down to the keep the, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, before you ever get down to anything that is positive about this. Yet there's a balance. There's a lot of, I think there's probably... Eight thou shalt nots, and two thou shalt. So it doesn't have to numerically be balanced, but there is a balance because it seems to me that whenever this uh, uh, Jesus was talking about to the young rich man, he said, well, what can I do? I want to be kind of like your disciples. I'm, in, I'm intrigued. I'm enchanted by these people that follow you. I'm enchanted by you. And what must I do? And... Uh, He says, well, keep the commandments. And it was this list of uh, uh, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That was Jesus' reply, thou shalt not. And the young man said, I've done all that. And he said, then you only want to lack one thing, and that's a positive thing. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Take up your cross. Follow me. That was a positive thing. It's not all the things you quit. So that was another example of we just get caught up in thinking of all the things we don't do that makes us good people. God reminds us it's also an affirmative thing. What is it you do that's in obedience to God as well? So from those two examples, it looks like it only takes a couple of do's to balance the scale of a ton of do-nots. Nevertheless, it takes both to have a rich combination and balance in our life. Now, the first negative that the psalmist lists that I would suggest puts us on the road to being happy in God is he says, uh, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
let me put that in some different words. Reject the wisdom of the world. A godly person understands that the wisdom of the world is faulty, it's tainted with bias, it's short-sighted, it's unreliable. The tragedy is this, and I'm keenly aware of this because I am a pastor, and I look at the world with eyes of a pastor, and I look at people in my church with the eyes of a pastor. The tragedy is this, is how many people prefer to call themselves Christians, but they tend to adopt personal philosophies and opinions that are straight out of the worldly wisdom playbook. Now that one really, that confuses me. The things that I've heard roll out of people's mouths, sometimes from my congregation, sometimes from this church, sometimes from other churches I've pastored, that deviates from the Word of God. Yet they love God. But on this particular issue, they have an opinion. It's not a biblically-based opinion. It's just an opinion. In other words, they are receiving their counsel and taking their advice and falling in line with the counsel of the ungodly. Now, you are seeing more and more of that happen in Christianity as we are, if it will be in direct proportion to the number of young people that we fail to successfully disciple. They will grow up with a cursory understanding of God, but not a great knowledge and understanding of his word. They will acknowledge this big entity in the sky that loves them. But they won't have a great grasp on the theology of living a Christian life. And it takes digging in God's word and discovering what God expects of us through the various teachings, through the the theological uh, letters of Paul. You know, there's not a lot of theology, deep theology in the Old Testament. There's an explanation of God and kind of depicts his interaction with people and how he reacts in certain circumstances. And there's not a lot of deep theology there. There's not a lot of deep theology in the Gospels. Have you ever noticed that? There's just a story of Jesus that, and, and the basic story that he, he came, he lived among us, he was the Son of God, he died on a cross, and uh, he uh, rose again. And, and we get that, and, and that's, that's, that's the crux of Christianity. But when you get into daily living, there's not a lot in the Gospels that really get down to the nitty-gritty. There's a little bit. Where you really get into the life of Christianity is in the writings of Paul when he was writing to churches about things that had never been taught by Jesus, had never been taught in the Old Testament. And they were having church squabbles and they didn't know what to do about it. And Paul began to take concepts that were just alluded to by Old Testament prophets or the examples of Jesus. And he began to sew these together and say, when you put these together, this is what it means about living for God. Because people will use this excuse about Christianity and say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about. In other words, there's not a direct statement or reference to some particular issues. Therefore, they think they they have freedom to do anything they want to do. But when you get into what Paul teaches about, We begin, and you put that together with what the Holy Spirit works with us in our heart 
and warns us about things you do, things you say, places you go that may offend him, the Holy Spirit, and consequently not please God the Father. Then you begin to get the, 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 the essence of what it means to really live for God. So you just can't go and find some specific issue in the Bible. If it's not there, say the Bible doesn't mention it, so it doesn't really matter. Let's, let's take a, a marijuana, for instance. You know the Bible doesn't speak directly about marijuana. So there's that group that says, well, it doesn't say anything. I guess we're free to make up our own mind. But I think if you, if you really fall in love with Jesus, you really begin to study the works of Paul and what he wrote to people in the churches and talked about our responsibility and our witness and talked about the clearness of mind and soundness of mind and all these things, I think you begin to see that it's really not something that God's interested in us as his people in getting involved in, in, in just uh, uh, having these, these mind-blowing trips. I, I, it's, it's pretty easy to see that that's not something that God would want his children to, to, to be involved in or to be out there on the cutting edge of and trying to introduce into the church because these things are revealed. The more you live for God, then the more you read his word. Uh, shockingly enough, the Bible doesn't clearly say anything about polygamy. And I think everybody here realizes we men don't want more than one. But it doesn't really directly say. But there's enough there that we can have a very good understanding and very good case that God's plan is that a man shall leave his mother and father and and, uh, have a wife, one, and, and the two shall become one, not the three shall become one. Not the, so see, you've got you to lose a little extension here. Not the four shall become one, two shall become one. So it, there's things you have to look for without having a direct thus saith the Lord. I think without good discipleship, without good Sunday schools, without good Bible studies, I think we have a crop of young people that are coming up that don't know what the Bible really truly teaches us. And then they're going to begin to buy into the counsel of the ungodly because they're being fed that on a daily basis. You want the counsel of the ungodly? Watch any television show. You'll get the counsel of the ungodly. Tell you exactly. They'll tell you exactly how you ought to feel about the current social issues. They'll brainwash you. Any movie you go to has a hidden worldly agenda in trying to pitch concepts that are contrary to what I as a Christian understand. And if you don't have a good foundation in God's word, you will eventually grow up with this mixed bag of stuff. I love God, but I believe in this. And what you believe in is straight from the world. It's, it makes no godly sense whatsoever. I see more and more young people getting into that confused state. If you want to be happy, you can't go with the counsel of the ungodly. You can't trust what this world teaches you. You cannot rely on their assessment of what is good and right or wrong and bad. And and, You just can't do it. They've got a totally skewed standard that they live by. Following the wisdom of the world is not the pathway to happiness. Sadly, people are persuaded by the opinions of their friends. They're persuaded by the opinions of pop culture idols. They're subtly indoctrinated by 
the media. They're, they're indoctrinated by the songs they listen to. Hell is no amateur in the marketing industry. Nobody's going to directly swallow hell's poison if it just slaps us in the face. But if it's buried beneath slick, compelling entertainment, or it's buried in a catchy tune, and it becomes a part of one's being, it begins to influence the way you think about life. I mean, there's a lot of popular songs out there that the lyrics to them are, are embarrassing, highly corrosive, ungodly, anti-biblical. But you get that song in your brain and you go running around singing it all day long. And sometimes you don't even know what you're singing. You ever had that experience? You heard somebody singing and said, do you know what that song says? Okay, now I'm, now I'm really putting my job on the line this morning. My wife hates it when I go here. But it's a thrill for me to get live in danger territory once in a while. I suppose most of you know that song, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Yeah, most of you probably know that. I am shocked at the number of Christians that think that's a wonderful song. Have you ever listened to that song? other than the word hallelujah? I don't know if I can sing it. <laughs> I can't sing it. But I can tell you, it, it's talking about David having an affair with Bathsheba and singing hallelujah. It, it's, it's talking about uh, mixing up the story of Samson with, with the story of David and, and getting his hair cut. And it, it wasn't David at all. It, it's, it's totally messy. It's, it's, theologically, it's a wreck. And there's nothing about it in that song that hallelujah, like I connect it to God where I'm praising him, there's nothing in subject material in that song that makes me want to shout hallelujah. Oh, but it's such a beautiful song. Now, that's what I'm talking about. You get things that are stuck in your brain that's got trash for lyrics. And it begins to get in your soul and it's corrosive. Don't you care? Don't you care? If you don't care, I can show you some rotten hamburgers in the trash that you can eat. If you don't care what you're ingesting. I'll tell you what. I've gone out to eat from time to time and you find a hair in the middle of your hamburger, I'm done. I'm done. You want to pick the hair out and keep eating? You're a bigger person than I am. But you want to make that a spiritual thing? When you're going down the road and you find that hair in the hamburger spiritually and you want to keep on devouring it, there's something wrong. Your spiritual appetite, your spiritual man ought to be repulsed by coming up against things that are objectionable. Number two, he says, don't follow the crowd. If you want to be happy, don't follow the crowd. I'd, I'd rather preach number one for another couple of hours, but I, I've, got to, I've got to move on. Number two, if you want to be happy, don't follow the crowd. crowd. Or take the path that sinners tread. The careful wording here is used to imply that there's something very specific about our interaction with sinners. I'm no prude. I realize we're surrounded by sinners. I realize sinners need friends. I realize if sinners have Christian friends, it's probably the best thing they can have. 
It's okay to be a friend to a sinner. It's okay to be somebody they can call their friend, that they can call on you when they need help. That's good. That's okay. But what he's talking about here, when he's talking about taking the path that sinners tread, is something that is much deeper. It's not talking about casual contacts with sinners. It's not talking about refusing to have friends with anybody except those who are really, truly Christian. It's talking about being careful not to desire their lifestyle. Now, I'm not so much tempted by that as an adult. I'm pretty strong in my faith. I know what I want in life. I'm not driven by, by uh, uh, trends. I don't have to be on the cutting edge of, of uh, trends, like in clothing. or uh, I don't, because I, I'm very comfortable in my skin. And I know probably sometimes I dress kind of frumpy. But I don't have to be on the cutting edge because I don't have to please anybody else. As long as my wife's not complaining, I'm, I'm okay. I'm comfortable. But you know, when I was a young child, that wasn't so. There were a lot of temptations when I was growing up. There were a lot of popular places when I was a child, a young person, that the rest of the young people my age would go to in town. They had one business that was opened up that it, it, it was just a youth center, a place where they could go and they would play the popular rock and roll songs of the day and the kids could go there and they could just sit at the table and have a, a french fries and a Coke or they could get on the dance floor and they could dance. It was just a hangout. And my parents would not let me go there because they figured any place there was a gathering of young people without good adult chaperone was just a good place for things to go wrong. So they didn't let me go. And I felt terribly deprived. I'll admit it. I was in that age where this is where everybody's at except me. And I would hear them at school talking about the neat things and cool things that they saw happen and what happened. And they were all having fun. And I wasn't there. Never could go there. I asked two or three times just seeing if maybe my parents were getting soft. They never got soft. The, the local bowling alley in our town was a real popular teenage hangout when I finally got my driver's license by that time. Uh, hordes of teenagers, young people, would rendezvous at the bowling alley. They didn't bowl. They didn't care anything about bowling. It was just the place that they began to, to gather. And, and besides the bowling alley, that was like the first place in town that had pong, for those of you who know what I'm talking about. So it was a cool place to be. You go down there and you hang out till you find some kids you wanted to be with for the night and then you load up with them and you get in the car and you go somewhere and get in trouble. My parents didn't like me hanging out at the bowling alley because I figured any place without proper adult supervision, you know, you know the routine. So it was alluring. I had friends I grew up with, I walked to school with. And we played backyard games of football and baseball. And there began to be a separating of our paths as these friends began to take another direction in life. And it was real popular in our little town of about 9,000 people that the, the, the teenagers would walk uptown. It was a few blocks away and hang out uptown. And I thought, I'd like to go hang out with some people. And I asked my mom, can I walk uptown? No, you don't have any business uptown. 
they had different ideas about everything. So I didn't get to go uptown until I realized that the trouble they were getting into, that they would sometimes meet the next day and they would show the cache of stuff that they were able to steal from the uptown stores, successfully stuffing an entire dress shirt down their pants and walking out. And, and the little things in a bottle of cologne and they, 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 all, all the stuff that they had, and they were comparing who had the best take. They were meeting uptown on Friday nights and somehow they were able to find some adult somewhere that was able to supply them with the booze and they were meeting and, and going off and drinking, gathering around the little uh, show place, uh, the movie house uptown. And uh, then they would go off and drink somewhere. And, you know, I missed out on all that stuff. Thank God. Thank God. Because my life would be drastically different today, different today if I had gotten involved with the lure and the compelling. Come on, be a part of it. You're missing out on it. I did not have all the strength of character at that point to make the right decisions. I understood right and wrong, but I didn't always understand where wrong was lurking. And I had parents that filled in the gap for me. When I would say, well, there's not doing anything wrong, but they knew how easy it was to go wrong. I remember one time specifically, whenever a, a, a group of my friends wanted to go out, it's a little hard to explain how this happened. I had, uh, we had an acquaintance who owned a salvage yard. And we had been given an old Pontiac Tempest just to do anything we wanted to with it. So we hauled this Pontiac Tempest out to this junkyard, borrowed the guy's garage and his cutting torch and cut the top off of it and uh, cut the doors off of it. I don't know why. It was just something to do. And so we had this junkyard car, no top on it, no doors on it, and we'd get it and we'd drive it around his little circle path that went around the junkyard. And so the, the, the guy's decided one night we're going to go out and we're going to drive the car around the junkyard. Want to come? And I said, well, yeah, I'll ask my dad. Dad, can I go out and drive our, uh, our car around? He said, no. Well, Dad, you don't understand. We, we created this thing. We worked on this. This is what it's for. You know? He said, no. What? It wasn't like I was given to arguing with my dad, but you, you kind of press for, can you give me a good reason why not, <laughs> without getting slapped down. And, you know, he finally had to insist that that's not your property. You don't have any business out there. You can't go. Well, I was, I was really depressed that night. You know, we had put blood, sweat, and tears into this buggy, this mud buggy. And they were out there having all the fun with it, and I couldn't go. Until I found that the next day that they had ran into some of his machinery and wrecked it and did some damage. And I'm thinking, yeah, you bunch of dummies. I knew enough not to go. <laughs> How many of you are thankful that you've had parents that guided you and helped you when you didn't have enough sense to know right and wrong yourself? Aren't you grateful that God gives us parents? Parents that care. Parents that know a little more than we did at that time, although we would argue the point then. That watched out for me, that God watching out for me through parents that cared. They didn't want their child messed up by making bad decisions and being in the wrong places with the wrong people at the wrong time. 
And I knew what it was like to feel compelled and maybe want to be a part of that. And I also remember one, one time, somehow, someway, coming home with a couple of my friends late at night. And I don't know what we were out doing. Walking home, and they decided to stop and pick some apples off the tree and throw them at a house. And I walked away, and I thought, what am I doing? It was a wake-up call for me, because mom and dad couldn't always watch over me. They couldn't always be there. They couldn't call every shot for me. But there had to come a point where I grew up to the point where I myself made the decision, what am I doing with this mess? That's going a direction I do not plan on going with my life. And I went on home, and I believe that was the last time I ever went hanging out with those people. Because something finally took hold. They helped form me. They helped make me. They helped make my decisions for me until finally I got it. And I was able to make those decisions on myself. If you want to be happy, you can't take the path that sinners tread. You can't do everything the world does. You can't take their cue. And all those kids that I used to hang out with. And I, I can trace some of them today, thanks to Facebook and thanks to our high school uh, page on there uh, and thanks to email. And I can trace most all of those. Well, I can trace most of them. Some are alcoholics. Some are dead already. Many of them have a messed up life in and out of broken relationships. I do not know one who even comes close to having the quality of life that I have with a godly wife and a godly family and godly sons. I don't know one that comes close because you know what I am reaping today goes way back to the years when I was careful and somebody helped help me be careful about what I sowed and the decisions I make about are you going to follow the paths that sinners take? Is that where it's really going to make you happy? Or are you going to make the tough decisions so you can reap later on real happiness in the life? I'm telling you, I'm happy. I'm blessed. Happy is the man that does not follow the sinful path of the world. Number three, do not partner with those who show contempt for the things of God or sit in the seat of the scornful is the way that the King James says it. But if you want to really be happy, don't associate or sit in the seat of scoffers or become partakers of those who mock God. Now on the surface, I think all of us would say, of course not. Of course I wouldn't do that. But you know, we subtly end up doing that sometimes. You have to be very careful, people about who you call your heroes. Especially when those heroes are making a big deal out of things that scoff and mock God. You can't just say, well, they're wonderfully talented people. I know they've got these other things. I don't care a flip about their talent. If they're mocking God, they don't deserve your adoration and your support. There have been many famous people that have publicly said, hateful and despicable things about God, about Christ, and about the Bible. And it just puzzles me how people can put that aside and compartmentalize that and nevertheless say, but I like the way they sing. I don't understand it. Can you really put up with somebody mocking your God, your Christ, and say, but that's okay, because as an artist, they're just outstanding. Don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Don't join yourself to those kind of people. Now, there's enough of you here that lived through the the, the Beatles revolution. 
Some of the young people, you don't, you don't know the full impact of that Beatles revolution. But I was alive during that time. I remember watching them landing in the United States. I remember the black and white film uh, of seeing them land. I remember the, them on the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, basically, they were just playing in bars in Europe. They were not popular at all. They had no following. They had no gathering. They landed in America with their statement of rebellion. And the young kids mobbed them. It became a complete revolution, a counter cultural revolution and they, they they skyrocketed to fame and they led the way for some of the most uh, uh, aggressive re- rebellions against the culture norms and and society in the united states they they opened the door they led the way probably have beetle fans here But whenever John Lennon, in the midst of their, their uh, skyrocketing to this fame, was doing an interview, he said, the church is going, Christianity is going to fail. We don't need to argue about that. I'm right, and I will soon enough be proven right. Right now, we are more popular than Jesus. Now, when he said that, that was in... England. We didn't hear about it here in the United States until somebody picked up the article and published it here in the United States six months later. And we found out John Lennon stands up and says, we're more popular than Jesus. They were barely able to finish their tour here in the United States, playing to empty houses. The, United, the people of the United States had enough decency in that hour to say, you're not going to put your finger in the nose of my Savior and get away with it. They quit buying their tickets. They quit supporting them. And the Beatles never did one more tour of the United States. They went home and they became strictly a studio group. That's it. They were just going to sell albums. And they went crazy after that, experimenting with, with Eastern mysticism and with drugs. And, and they, they just went nuts. But there was a time when decent people in the United States, you're not going to do that to my God. But we're not living in a day and age where that phases people much anymore. All you have to have is some smart aleck punk from England stand up and say, we're more popular than Jesus. And people at that time marginalized him. Don't say that about my God. You'll never amount to anything compared to my Jesus. But what happens today? Madonna, which I realize is a fading star, but she's been famous throughout her career for mixing sex and religion in her her concerts. In her confessions tour, she irreverently posed herself in crucifixion position against a cross. It didn't cost her her career. She said crucifixes are sexy because there's a naked man on them. That didn't cost her her career. For the wrestling fans, you have Triple H running around the ring wearing a crown and calling himself King of Kings. Hasn't ruined his career. Rapper Jay-Z has a famous line, God, MC, me, Jehovah. And he refers to himself simply as Hova, an obvious blasphemous abbreviation of Jehovah. And that hasn't ruined his career in this day and age. These are a few examples of the people who scorn God. Let one person draw a 
cartoon about Muhammad and the world of the Muslims comes apart. They're not going to settle for that. Let one person burn a Quran and the Muslims are not going to settle for that. They are livid that anybody has spoken about their prophet or their God. But let somebody blaspheme Jesus Christ or take a crucifix of Jesus and put it in a jar of urine and sell it as art and nobody does anything. Happy is the man who will not be consenting to the seat of the scornful and sit with them and say, I don't care what they do in their private life. I just kind of like their movies. You're going to have to get your brain separated because you're buying into a plot of hell to confuse you and destroy the distinctions in your life that tell you the difference between right and wrong. I'm telling you, I'm going on record right now. If they're going to blaspheme my God, I don't have any time for them. I don't want their product. I don't want their movies. I don't want their music. I don't want anything. They're not going to be in my house. My God, is that important to me? Is he important to you? Do you even care? If you could grasp the full impact of the crucified Savior, if you could really get a hold of that horrible and that gruesome death, that he endured. If you could just get a hold of that. I don't know how many of you saw the movie. The Passion of the Christ. There is no question about I didn't particularly care for the whole concept of the movie. But I'm going to tell you this. I took my youngest son to go see it. I just felt I, we both needed to know exactly what it was so if I ever spoke about it people would not challenge me and say well you've never seen it you can so we went and saw it there's no question in my mind it was the most graphic depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus I've ever witnessed in my life we sit in that movie house and watching what was going on for the first time in my life I'm not talking about somebody dragging a cross down the center aisle with fake blood smeared on them. I'm talking about something that was done with every Hollywood special effect they could pull out. It was done. It looked like the real thing. I'm sitting there. And I had to turn my head because I couldn't watch it. I couldn't watch it. What they were doing to this man that reminded me of what they did to my Jesus. I, 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 I turned my head. I closed my eyes. I couldn't see it. If you can ever get a hold of what Jesus did for you. If that can get down in your heart. If you can understand the pain, the agony, the suffering for you. You will not stand for these smart alecks running around blaspheming your Jesus. And you certainly won't be giving them more of your money because you just kind of like the way they look. I think there must be a disconnect between us and Jesus to be a, a fan of people who's no fan of God. Not only not a fan of God, but an enemy of God. Happy is the man who has such a handle, and the woman, such a handle on their ethics and their morals, that the minute that God is drugged through the sewer, they're done. 
you've gone too far and it's no more. I will not stand for that with my Jesus. He comes to the positive against these things that he says, happy people don't do this. He comes to the positive thing that happy people do. He says, they value the guidance of God's word. It's a travesty in this day and age. Somebody have been poisoned against the Bible. And, and sometimes there, there's places where if you dare say, but the Bible says, they'll laugh you down before you can ever finish your sentence. They don't care what the Bible says. For some people, it has no relevance for the 21st century. But serious scholars have always believed that God's word is timeless and it's truth for all people. In this brainwashed culture, they have disregarded the Bible and disregarded God. But the way to true happiness is to understand the Bible's not outdated. It's not outmoded. It's still good for the day today. And the people who are really going to find true happiness in their life understand there's only happiness in studying God's word and understanding what it says to us and living according to his word. There is no happiness in any other way. And the blessings that the psalmist pronounces on that are just beautiful. If, if you can let your imagination just draw you a picture because the people who don't do those things and do this thing, they're like trees planted by the water. They yield their fruit in its season. It's going to come, people. It's going to come. If you live a godly life, you're going to yield your fruit in its season. It may not be here today, but I can trust you. It's going to come. It's going to be all right. And their leaves do not wither. In other words, the withering leaf means you're dying. But as long as there's leaf, there's going to be fruit. And your leaves are going to stay green because you're living for God. And he says, in all they do, they shall prosper. I think we can all buy into that one. That's the path to happiness of a godly person. I finish this with just a very quick reference to the other side of the coin, and that's the ungodly. And the scripture says, the godly are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. The godly will not stand in judgment, and the sinners will not be in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Everything about the wicked is so temporary. It's like chaff that's driven away of the wind. Their life is cheap. Their thrills are temporary. They will not endure. They try to find happiness. They try to find happiness, but it won't be found outside of God. People are searching. They're searching for who they are. They're searching for their identity. They're searching to be recognized. Many of you will recognize the name of Courtney Love. She had cosmetic surgery to change her mouth. And she says, I just want the mouth God gave me back because here's a woman that went looking for happiness and didn't find it until she realized I should have been happy with what God had given me. You know, you can't make these decisions about finding happiness. You've got to live with the rest of your life in regret. You've got to understand that happiness is found in what God has given you. According to a British poll, and this, one, this one's even more shocking, 65% of those who have had cosmetic surgery regret it. You want to know something more serious than that? We're not just talking about cosmetic surgery. Let's talk about the cosmetic surgery it has to do with, with transgenders who have check, sex change surgery. A national survey, national survey of 5,600 transgenders asked, have you tried to commit suicide? 
41% said that they actually have tried. Not they've thought about it. 46%, which is just phenomenally above the average of any other group. You go through that trouble to change yourself from a man to a woman, and then you don't like what you have. And you think about killing yourself. And the lines are swelling from this group, lining back up to change them back. People are searching. When the godless attempt to find their own happiness, whatever they find is going to be very fleeting and ultimately unfulfilling. Everybody wants to be happy, but some just refuse to do it God's way. Johnny Carson wrote a book, Happiness is a Dry Martini. Really? Really? Of course, three Mrs. Carsons sued him for divorce. Happiness is. Happiness is my Savior who died for me and a life that is dedicated to him at any cost. God's the only way to happiness. You will not find it at the bottom of a liquor bottle. You won't find it tripping on dope. You won't find it chasing after another man's wife. You won't find it in the abundance of things you possess. You won't find it in a bigger paycheck. You won't find it by finally getting that six-figure job you've always dreamed of, but you will find it when you finally just rest in God. He's all I need. He's all I need. Worship team, would you come?